1998, 39-year-old Lois Roberts disappeared from Nimbin, New South Wales, and was later found murdered. Then, in 2013, 24-year-old Monique Club vanished into thin air from Brisbane, Queensland, and no trace of her has been found. These are just two missing and murdered Indigenous women from Australia. They are two out of who knows how many cases. We don't know because most states in Australia aren't keeping count. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to this month's third Thursday bonus episode. Every third Thursday during 2020, I will be profiling missing and murdered Indigenous persons cases. This month, we are headed to Australia to cover two cases there, and after doing some research, I know this won't be the last time we will cover cases from Australia during this series. As you know, if you've listened to these episodes before, there is more history and social context given than in my regular release episodes. I know I can't take it for granted that you all know the things I cover historically speaking because I know I never learned these things. Today, because most of my listeners are not from Australia, I am going to have to preload this episode with some information. Just FYI, all mispronunciations are my own. I did watch a lot of YouTube videos to try to get the words down, but we all know I'm pretty terrible at this. Also, remember that this is a largely new information to me, since I am not from Australia. If I misrepresent anything, I will absolutely accept correction. So, before we get started, let's have a quick discussion on language. Australia is home to two broad groups of Indigenous people, Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders. It is not appropriate to call every Indigenous person in Australia Aboriginal. Aboriginal Australians are those from the mainland continent and many of the islands, except for the Torres Strait Islands. At the time of colonization, there were over 250 nations, each with several clans, as diverse in language and culture as the tribes here in the Americas. It's not any more appropriate to lump all Aboriginal Australians together than it is Native Americans. Torres Strait Islanders are the second indigenous group, and they are from the islands that are between the tip of Queensland and Papua New Guinea. They are linguistically, genetically, culturally different than the Aboriginal Australians. The Torres Strait Islanders have more in common with the Papuans, who are the indigenous people of Papua New Guinea. However, Australia annexed the islands in the late 1800s, making the Torres Strait Islanders indigenous Australians, but still distinct from capital A Aboriginal Australians. Terms like indigenous Australians, First Nations Australians, First Australians, and the like are sometimes preferred to Aboriginal as to not exclude Torres Strait Islanders. But there is an argument to be made for saying both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people every time 
we refer to Indigenous Australians. That way, the Torres Strait Islanders aren't forgotten or erased from conversations. The women we are talking about today are both Aboriginal women, so I will be saying Indigenous and Aboriginal. And another important thing I need to note is that many Indigenous Australian cultures practice name avoidance after someone's death. For a period of a year, up to several years after the person has died, they are not referred to by their first name. This is not a universal practice because, like I said, the Indigenous communities of Australia are diverse. In the murder case we are discussing today, the family does use her name, so I am following their lead on that. We are going to get more into name avoidance and that practice in an upcoming episode because it will apply there. And that's when I'll go more in depth. But I did want to mention it today at the top of this episode that you know that I am aware of the issue. Okay. So with that out of the way, let's start with the case of Lois Roberts. Lois was Bundjalung, which is an Aboriginal nation from the northern coast of present-day New South Wales and southern present-day Queensland. There are 15 clans within the nation, and Lois was from the Widgeable clan. Lois's father was born on Cabbage Tree Island, which is three hours north of Sydney. When Australia began the reserve system in the 1850s, many of the Aboriginal reserves were self-sufficient and, to some extent, some were even self-governing. Cabbage Tree Island was one of those. But over the years, the Australian government took more and more control. In 1911, Cabbage Tree Island became designated as an Aboriginal station, which meant the government then took full control. From then moving forward, the reserve system in Australia became more and more Big Brother-like. I want to note that the legislation was all named things like Aborigines Protection Act and Aborigines Welfare Board, because the spin on this was the same we see elsewhere. They were helping the Native people. But of course, we know what it did was hurt communities, families, and individuals very deeply. And it was around the 1930s, 1940s that Australia was focusing on decreasing the number of Aboriginal communities by moving people, by force, to larger, more tightly controlled stations, missions, and reserves. And they would then be forced to stay there. There was no freedom of movement. Lois Roberts' grandfather decided to literally break the law by leaving the island with his family. They moved to Lismore, which is inland from Byron Bay. Lois's father, Frank, went to Sydney to study theology. While there, he met a Sunday school teacher named Muriel, and they fell in love, got married, and moved back to Lismore, where Frank became a minister with the Church of Christ and an Aboriginal rights activist. This marriage was uncommon at the time because Muriel was white. While marriage between races was not illegal at the time, it also was not common, to the point 
that Muriel would be out with her four children and people would give her a pat on the back for adopting all those Aboriginal children. So not illegal, but also not expected or as accepted. I want to give a snapshot of the Lismore Lois was growing up in. Lois and her twin sister Rhoda were three years old when the local high school started allowing Aboriginal students to enroll in 1963. It was the start of desegregation in the area. Rhoda has mentioned in the documentary A Sister's Love that there were restaurants her mother could eat in that she couldn't go in. So Lois and her siblings, which included obviously her twin sister and then her two brothers, they grew up going to school with white children and Rhoda mentioned that Lois would be her protector against the bullies. It's surprising because Rhoda is now a major face in the Aboriginal rights movement. But as a child, she was not quite so bold. Lois was, though. She would stand up to the bullies, but she'd also befriend the kids even those they would overhear making racist jokes. Rhoda was the rule follower, and Lois was the one who pushed the boundaries. In reading about their father, Frank, I feel like they split his personality down the middle, and they each got half. Frank was a devout Christian minister who lived the Bible in his daily life. He walked the straight and narrow but he was also an activist pushing back against discrimination and racism. He fought to get back access and control of sacred Aboriginal lands. He rallied people against unjust laws. So if you take this person, split them in two, and you get Rhoda and Lois as children. After high school, Rhoda went away to school to train to be a nurse while Lois studied to be a hairstylist, something she had wanted to do all through high school. As they approached their 21st birthday, the sisters talked about going overseas and seeing the world together. But before their birthday came around, Lois was in a terrible car accident. At 20 years old, she was on life support and not expected to make it. The doctors did not believe she would have enough brain function to live self-sufficiently, even if she did pull through. Eventually, though, Lois woke from her coma. She was in bad shape, but not as bad as the doctors had feared. She suffered brain damage in the accident and had a series of strokes afterwards that set her back even further. But Lois went to rehab where she had to learn to walk, talk, and even feed herself. Miraculously, Lois did relearn all of these things and more to the point she could live mostly independently but she was left permanently disabled. She was unable to drive or work. She did have some romantic relationships over the years. She gave birth to a son in her 20s. Lois was a loving mother, but she did struggle with caring for a child full-time, so he lived with Muriel. In her 30s, Lois had another baby, a daughter, and Rhoda adopted her at birth. 
Lois was connected to her children. She was involved with them, even though she wasn't capable of raising them. The accident had left Lois with impaired judgment. She lacked inhibition. She took people at face value. And this means she was easy for people to take advantage of and to manipulate even people she considered friends. But she ended up finding a circle of encouraging and welcoming people in a village called Nimbin. I've never heard of it before, but I mentioned it to an Australian listener who was like, Nimbin is its own thing. I'd say it's kind of like a modern-day hippie-slash-bohemian-slash-counterculture area. And as a place like that, they are more welcoming of differences and nonconformity. To put it bluntly, they didn't have the ableist attitudes that left Lois feeling like an outsider elsewhere. Lois felt accepted for who she was. That doesn't mean everyone in Nimbin was a gem of a human being, that they were worthy of Lois's time or her trust, but she did find good people there, and she spent a lot of her time out there while she was living in the Lismore area. It was about a 30-minute drive between her house and, like, the center of Nimbin, but Lois didn't drive, so she would take the bus According to the 2020 bus schedules, it would take about an hour to get there and then an hour back. I don't know how long it would have taken in the 1990s, but any length of time would have been worth it to Lois to get to spend time with people she felt cared about her. On Thursday, July 30th, 1998, 39-year-old Lois went to visit her mom, Muriel, which was something she was doing very frequently at that point. Muriel wasn't well, and she was heading in for an operation soon, so Lois would stop by almost daily to check on her. She left that night after 9 p.m. Lois did not come back over on Friday. She didn't call, which Muriel didn't find completely unusual. Sometimes they would go a day between talking or seeing each other. Not always, but sometimes. But when Muriel didn't hear from Lois on Saturday, she mentioned it to Lois's brother, Mark. He decided to go out to Lois's house to check on her. And when he got there, she wasn't home. Her grocery delivery was still sitting on her doorstep. So Mark just assumed she was out and he'd check back later. The next day, he drove by and saw that the groceries were still out front. Obviously, if Lois had been home, she would have carried them inside, and it was unusual for her to stay away for a couple of nights without telling anyone or without at least telling a neighbor to bring her shopping in for her. And Lois usually spent Sundays going to church and then visiting her mother afterwards, and she didn't show up to either of those places. So for the next few days, a couple of things happened. One, Mark went to the bank, and he asked the bank teller about Lois. It was early August, and Lois would have gotten her disability support check, something that she would cash right away. The bank teller said that Lois had not been in. 
So then Mark called Lois's twin sister, Rhoda, who was in Sydney at the time. Rhoda had years before left nursing, and she was pursuing a career in the arts quite successfully. She worked to represent the Aboriginal experience on the stage as an actress. In the summer of 1998, she was working as creative director of the Indigenous Australian portion of the opening ceremonies planned for the Sydney Olympics. So in the middle of working on the project of a lifetime, she gets this call that Lois is missing. And what does Rhoda do? She drops everything and drove to Lismore. The third thing that happened in those early days was that Mark went to the police to report Lois missing. This would have probably been the Sunday or Monday after she left Muriel's house. Now, here's the thing with Mark going to the police. It was a big deal for him to do that. Like many Indigenous Australians, he had a learned distrust of authority that started well before he could have been old enough to even get in trouble with the police. In Canada, it's called the 60s scoop. In Australia, it is called the stolen generation or generations. It's where Aboriginal children were forcefully removed from their families. In 1995, the Australian government conducted an inquiry into the policy and found that between 10 and 33% of Indigenous Australian children were removed from their families from 1910 until the practice was technically stopped in 1970. I say technically stopped because according to a 2018 Family Matters report on Indigenous children in Australia, they are still 10 times more likely to be placed in foster care than their non-Indigenous peers. So Indigenous children are still being removed from their families just under a different policy, different procedure. And this number between 10 and 33 percent, that's a big difference. And what that tells me, what that tells all of us, is they weren't keeping track. We don't even know who all these children who were taken from their families are or where they went. The Roberts children were growing up during this period of stolen generations. Rhoda talked about this in that documentary I mentioned called A Sister's Love. She talked about being in school and all of the Aboriginal children would be pulled out of class periodically and essentially inspected. Did they have all their school books? Was their uniform clean? Were their hair and nails cared for? Basically, looking for a reason for removal. While I haven't been able to find a study that backs this up that's easily accessible on the internet, there is reason to believe that lighter-skinned children, biracial children like Lois and Rhoda, were actually removed more often because they were seen as more likely to assimilate into white society. Because that was the goal here that white society, that white was supreme, white supremacy, and the more likely you are to be successful at conforming and assimilating to that, the more likely you were to be removed from your indigenous family. So from an early age, indigenous children were taught to fear the authorities showing up randomly, 
because it meant a possible separation from their parents. And then when these children would grow into teens and were more likely to come into contact with police, we see racial profiling and targeting. According to Amnesty International, Indigenous Australian youth are 24 times more likely to be arrested than their non-Indigenous peers. You grew up like this, with your own traumatic experiences and deep-seated fears. Add in generational trauma of forced removals, the disregard of your humanity based on the color of your skin, and then somehow you become an adult and you are suddenly supposed to trust authorities just like that. That's not how it works. That doesn't make sense. So Mark going to the police was a big deal, and they told him Lois had to be missing for 24 hours before they would take the report. He said, actually, she has been missing for well over 24 hours. Then they said, well, don't worry about it. It's Lois. She's unpredictable. She's probably just out with friends. And then at some point in the early days of Lois's disappearance, the family was told she was probably on a walkabout. It wasn't until I listened to the Bowerville podcast that I even knew what this was. Historically, as in pre-colonization, Aboriginal clans tended to be semi-nomadic, generally seasonal movements, but this mobility would also be used as a rite of passage into adulthood. It just means going from one place and temporarily living somewhere else. The word walkabout has been used pejoratively so often that the word you're seeing more now is temporary mobility. The term walkabout has been used to put down Aboriginal people to write them off as drifters and to dismiss their missing persons reports. It absolutely 100% strips the meaning out of what a walkabout is. Lois would not have wandered off without telling her family where she was or what she was doing. She was in near daily contact with them. But no, she was Aboriginal, so it must be a walkabout. She must be just roaming around voluntarily. This is dripping with racism the way we see, oh, she's probably out partying with friends, used in North America. She's a Native American woman, so she must be drunk somewhere. This is the same thing, just a different principle, different phrasing. So Lois's family began searching for her, since the police wouldn't. They searched her house, which was in normal condition, no sign of a struggle or anything like that. They were able to piece together some of Lois's movements after they had last seen her when she was at Muriel's house on Thursday night. Lois did make it home Thursday night, and on Friday morning, July 31st, she had coffee at Caddy's, which is a local place in Lismore that she was a regular. Lois then took the bus to Nimbin for the day. Between 5 and 5.30 in the evening, a police officer in Nimbin saw Lois just outside the station at the bus stop. She had missed the bus back to Lismore and was trying to hitch a ride. This was not uncommon for Lois. These are small, everyone-knows-everyone communities, and Lois could usually get someone she knew to pull over and give her a lift. 
The officer went back to whatever he was doing, and when he looked out the window next, Lois wasn't there, so he thought to himself, good, Lois got a ride home, and he went about his business. That was the last time Lois had been seen. The family searched the area for any sign of Lois's things, a wallet, a shoe, anything. They put up posters in Nimbin and Lismore, and Rhoda would even get stopped by people thinking for a second she was Lois. That almost confused things a bit, but it was also another place for them to start. Rhoda could walk through an area and maybe trigger someone's memories, kind of like, did you see someone who looks like me here on Friday or here on Saturday? The family did get a lot of tips, but it was hard to parse through what was accurate and what was just rumor. It has been widely reported that a witness saw Lois get into a white car, but I'm not 100% sure where that came from or if it was just another rumor. Lois was missing for 10 days before the police began to take it seriously. And Rhoda thinks it's only because she leveraged some influence she had built as an actress in Sydney. The police did do an air and land search, but found nothing. They questioned the family, and Lois's brother Mark was one of the family members questioned pretty closely in relation to the disappearance. The police even took his car in to search it. They said they would need to hold it for several hours while they conducted the search, and then they kept his car for six months, until Mark went down there and specifically had to ask to get it back. I was first surprised he waited six months to go get his car back, but again, let's go back to his experiences with authority from the time he was a small child, and when I put myself in that position, I can absolutely see why he tried the best he could not to rock the boat or to invite any type of contact that he didn't need to. In spite of having the car for six months, the police found nothing. It was around the same time Mark asked for his car back that the case got its one and only break. Lois's remains were found. It is almost unbelievable that she was found at all. It was January 1999, and a group was bushwalking, which I would call hiking, in the Wyanwyan State Park, just 30 minutes east of Nimbin. They were deep into the forest, walking along a fire trail. One of the men had to pee, so he walked pretty far into the dense brush, a good 25 meters, which is roughly the same amount of yards, He looked down, and he saw a shallow grave with a body. The covering on this quote-unquote grave was really just leaves and brush. It wasn't really a burial. Because of the density of the foliage, it is unlikely that this man or anyone else would have found Lois's remains had they not walked right up to where she was. I was almost suspicious of this discovery. Because what are the odds he would have walked that far into the woods in that exact spot? This is a huge forest. What are the odds? 
But this man had absolutely nothing to do with Lois's disappearance. The police came out and they realized that not all of Lois's body was there. Her head was missing. The authorities believe it may have been taken by wild animals, but we do know of other cases where a head would be removed and buried elsewhere to prevent identification of the body. If that was the goal, it didn't work because the body was pretty quickly identified as Lois. With Lois's body was an electrical cord that had been used to bind her hands. She had over 40 defensive wounds, and the worst thing to hear, Lois had been alive for around 10 days after her disappearance, where she had been tortured and sexually assaulted. My assumption is they made the determination of how long she had been held alive based on the healing of wounds, but I haven't seen it spelled out anywhere how they made this determination. That is just my guess on it. I don't like to dwell on the graphic details, but I am going to repeat this. I want to underline it. I want to highlight it. The moment the police told Mark Roberts that Lois was probably on a walkabout, she was being held captive and tortured. While they were not looking for her, she was still alive. A coroner's inquiry on the case returned an open verdict. Lois was murdered, obviously, but nothing else was determined. And in Lois's case over the years, three main theories have been put forward with varying degrees of proof. One theory is that Lois was about to go to the authorities about a pedophile living in Nimbin. Someone at the Nimbin Caravan Park reportedly heard Lois yell at a man, I know who you are, you pedophile, and I'm going to expose you. The person then said he heard a sound like a four-by-four piece of wood hitting a chest. The man who told Rhoda about this incident said he didn't go check on what was happening. He may have just heard Lois being assaulted and just went about with his day. The next day, though, he saw blood at that trailer where he heard the yelling, and the man had some kind of excuse involving kangaroos, so they cleaned up the mess. The man did eventually go to the police with what he knew, but by that point, all of this evidence, if that's what it was, had been washed away. And this witness has since died. The man who lived in that trailer, though, according to Rhoda, was found with a hand-drawn map to where Lois's body was found. That's right, he had a map to the grave. And he also had Rhoda's name written down, not Lois's, giving way to the second theory in this case, and that's that Rhoda was the target. Either it was a case of mistaken identity or he took Lois because he was infatuated with Rhoda and couldn't get to her. The police showed Rhoda the writings to sort of warn her, so she saw photocopies of all of these writings. The man's car was taken and searched, but nothing was found. He said he drew the map to the grave based on news reports, and he didn't draw it until after Lois was found. There was no way to prove or disprove this. 
And without more evidence, they didn't feel they could take this to court, so he was not arrested. The third theory in this case is that Lois was the victim of a serial killer. While she usually took rides with friends, Lois would get into a stranger's car while hitchhiking if that's who pulled over. And there have been a number of murders and disappearances of women walking and hitchhiking in the North Coast area in the years on either side of Lois's murder. But there is no solid evidence to link any of the cases. While I was looking up other murders and disappearances that may be related, I came across the case of Simone Strobel, a German backpacker who was traveling through Lismore in early 2005 when she was murdered. She was with her boyfriend, his sister, and a friend. There are zero similarities between the cases. They are not linked. But what I noticed was the difference in the media response. Six years after Lismore born and raised Lois Roberts was tortured and murdered, the local paper ran the quote, her death triggered grief and remorse in a community that had believed itself safe from such seemingly random violence. That quote was not about Lois, it was about Simone. Six years after their own had been tortured, raped, and murdered, they felt safe from violence? That triggered grief and remorse in the community? This headline alone illustrates the view of Lois as a victim versus Simone. Now, Simone Strobel's case deserved every second of media coverage it got, but so did Lois's. Lois Roberts' murder remains unsolved. Now we are going to move up the coast of Australia to Queensland to talk about a more recent missing persons case, Monique Club. And I want to thank Monique's family for talking to me and answering a few questions that I still had after I went through the existing reporting. Monique grew up in Harvey Bay as the second child in a family of six children. Monique is Butchula and Harvey Bay, Fraser Island, and that area are traditionally owned by the Butchula people. Monique's family was very close, and it extended into all of their cousins, and she emerged as the leader of them. They loved to play outside together, always running around playing games, and Monique was very athletic. She would take part in athletic carnivals at school. She loved trail running. And she would also not just be fun in games. She would often step in as an extra set of hands to help out with the younger children. So she would take on this caretaking role and she'd continue it as an adult. When she got a job after school and had an income of her own, she would often spend that money on her siblings. Monique is a really outgoing person, and she had a solid group of friends in high school. But after high school, her friend group shifted, and it turned into a bit of a rougher crowd. And her family, as you can imagine, were not the biggest fans of this new group. And along with these friends did come some arrests for small crimes. When Monique would get arrested, she would stay locked up in pretrial detention. I found two separate cases where she spent so much time in pretrial detention, over 100 days both times, that she just pleaded out to a lesser charge and got time served and went home. 
This struck me as incredibly unjust. Even if Monique was innocent on these charges, why would she go to trial and spend more time locked up, waiting, rather than just plead guilty and go home after a hearing? Now, I'm not saying she was innocent of the charges. I'm not saying she's guilty. I'm just saying she was incentivized to plead guilty just to go home. And that does not sound like justice, but I digress. Now, the reason I'm bringing up Monique's criminal record is because her family believes it influenced the police response to what came next. On June 20th, 2013, 24-year-old Monique left on a spontaneous trip with three of her friends to Cobbleture, which is a three-hour drive south of where she lived, and it's to the north of Brisbane. The trip wasn't planned in advance, and there was no real reason for it other than that they had some free time, and it was a change of scenery for a few days. These three friends were among the ones her family didn't know well, weren't huge fans of, so her mother didn't really want her to go on this trip at all, but Monique was 24. How was she going to stop her? Two days later, on June 22nd, the friends went back to Harvey Bay without Monique. All the family heard about why they left her behind was that someone Monique knew picked her up, and that was the last they saw her. On June 22nd, the same day her friends went back home, Monique called her mother using her own cell phone. She said that she'd be home the next day, and that she was getting the money together she needed to get home. Monique was then spotted by CCTV later that day getting off a train in South Brisbane at the Beanley Station. This is an hour south of Cobbleture and in the opposite direction from her home. This did not make sense to me at all until I looked at the possible public transportation options from Brisbane to her home in Harvey Bay. It doesn't look like public transit goes from Cobbleture to Harvey Bay, so Monique may have been attempting to get to a station that had a connecting train or bus that would then take her north. Any listeners in the area can feel free to correct me if I'm way off base here. I can only rely on what internet mapping and transit schedules tell me, but we also can't rule out the possibility that she did go down there to meet somebody. In the CCTV footage, Monique was wearing sunglasses and a scarf wrapped around her head. The scarf is worn somewhat tightly, just covering her hair. So initially, to me, it looked like she had wrapped her hair. However, her family has indicated that this is not something Monique usually did, which then makes you wonder why she did it that day. The scarf and sunglasses, that combo... It does look a little like a disguise when you know Monique didn't usually wear a scarf around her hair like that. She was also wearing an unbuttoned coat, and the coat does look heavier than you'd expect given the temperature. It was around 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 Fahrenheit, but hot or cold is pretty relative. When I lived in Idaho, 68 was shorts weather, but my New Orleans family, they're grabbing for their jackets at the same temperature. I think what's happening with the CCTV snapshot is that it's the only clue we have. It was released 
because it shows what Monique looked like when she was last seen, so maybe it'll jog a witness's memory. But it is very closely cropped. All you see is Monique. So as much as we look at it for some hope of an answer, a clue, a deduction we could make from the photo that might get us some answers, there really isn't that much there. There is more footage of a woman at a Beanley shopping center running through the parking lot, apparently fearfully, but it has not been released. While the woman's description broadly matches Monique, apparently the quality of the footage is just not good enough to be sure. The police have not released anything more about this footage or really anything regarding this case. We don't know if there's anyone else in the video who may have been following this woman. We don't know if her clothes were that close of a match to what Monique was wearing in the other CCTV footage. We don't know if there's a car driving by. It's just a giant question mark. But while all of this is happening in the Brisbane area, Monique's family is blissfully unaware. They're just waiting on her to come home the next day like she said she would. Monique was always in touch with her family. I mean, she just called her mom while she was away for the weekend. So when she didn't come home or call the next day or the next, they knew something was wrong. They kept calling her cell phone without an answer. They sent her messages on Facebook. They watched her Facebook page for her to post something. She was a frequent texter, phone caller, social media poster, but nothing ever appeared. So they decided they had to report her missing. The police told the family that they have also searched Monique's social media, but all the family heard back about it was that there were no leads. They were not given any specifics. The family did ask the police if they could ping her cell phone, maybe get a better sense of her movements that day, and whether that happened or not, no one knows because the police have not talked to the family about it. With this lack of information coming from the police, it's hard for the family to feel confident that they did much or took Monique's disappearance seriously. The police said that they have taken this seriously. They have retraced Monique's steps as she went to Brisbane, through Brisbane, and tried to find out where she went to after her friends left her. But all we know for sure is that one CCTV image from the train station. I have a hard time believing the police didn't find more than that as far as her movements, but they haven't released it to the media and they have not told it to the family. We're not seeing things we see in other cases. We don't see them doing a reenactment on the train or through the train station. We don't see them broadcasting widely locations she was known to be in and asking witnesses to come forward. All of the press releases on this case are really pretty generic. Basically, 24-year-old woman missing, call if you've seen her. In one of my recent live streams, we talked about this idea of a, quote, worthy victim and where attention goes. We know the media. We know public attention. We are going to be looking at the victim who seems the least likely to be a victim, the person with the squeaky clean record, the 
young, pretty college student. Those are the cases, the media, the public, we, we look at. It just is. But we need the police to be better than us. We need investigators to ignore that and investigate the case, investigate Monique's case the same way they would have if she was a missing college student, if she was a missing German backpacker. We are coming up on seven years since Monique Club was last seen. She has not used social media, her phone, or her bank accounts since then. There have been some sightings, particularly early on. There was one that seemed pretty solid about two weeks after she was reported missing, and it put her as still being in the Brisbane area, but nothing came of it. And seven years down the road, I think it's pretty safe to say it probably was not her. The family has heard all sorts of rumors about what has happened, but no evidence and nothing of substance has ever turned up. The police have all but stopped communicating with the family unless the family calls or shows up and insists that someone talk to them. And when they do get someone to talk to them, they feel like they're being brushed off or rushed out of there. Recently, as in a little earlier this year, they did get to meet with someone in a sit-down, and he said he would have the investigating officer get in touch with them. The family left that meeting feeling like they might be getting somewhere, but it has been four months and they've not heard a thing. And you may wonder why all of a sudden they're getting a sit-down seven years later. It's because the media has been picking up this case, the national media, and now here I am in America talking about it. I'm not saying that they only got to sit down because of media pressure, but I am going to say the timing The timing is pretty interesting there. The only thing known for sure at this point is that Monique is not staying away of her own free will. She would not go from talking to family and friends multiple times a day, posting actively on social media, to absolute silence. Her family is prepared for the worst news. They still want to know it. They want to know where Monique is, even if that means they will be planning a memorial service. In Australia, there is no national figure for missing Indigenous people at all. Overall, Indigenous people represent 3% of the total population of Australia. As of right now, we have three states in Australia that have provided the ABC with their statistics on missing Indigenous people. In some cases, they are more estimates than hard and fast numbers. Queensland estimates 6% of unsolved missing persons cases are Indigenous people. New South Wales puts it at 7%. But Western Australia reports 17.5%. There is no breakdown by gender, so we cannot say how many are missing and murdered Indigenous women specifically. Now, four states... The Northern Territory, South Australia, Victoria, and Tasmania do not track this information. It really wouldn't be hard to. It would take time to go through all the missing persons reports and sort them out and put them into a database that will then kick out a number for you, but they're not doing it. When we discuss the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, whether we are talking Canada, America, Mexico, New Zealand, Australia, anywhere else, we need the data. And we straight up don't have it. 
But from the states that have provided the information, it does appear there is an issue with it being disproportionate to the population, just like it is here in North America. But how can you even begin to address a problem until you identify what it is? There have been attempts, often on the local or state level in Australia, to at least look into the issue surrounding missing and murdered Indigenous people. But many believe that without a national inquiry like Canada did, there won't be any lasting changes. Once again, we are looking to Canada as an example of the first steps into addressing this problem. We've seen in Canada that it is a long road. It is not happening overnight. Just gathering the appropriate information is taking years. But we need to stop looking to Canada and seeing what they're doing and actually start replicating some of it. We need to be willing to look and take a hard look at the problem and the root of the problem before we can start dealing with it. But I want to close this with Monique Club's information. She is a missing woman. People need to be looking for her. She is an Aboriginal woman and is 31 years old. She has brown hair and brown eyes. She is 170 centimeters tall, which is about five foot six. At the time of her disappearance, she had a slim, athletic build. Anyone with information is urged to call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. Charlie. 